The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of the owner, staff, or management of this radio station. Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Today we are going to be speaking about moral psychology and the righteous mind. Now many of you might not have even thought about the fact that moral psychology even existed, but it does. And I'm here with Dr. Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist at NYU School, Stern School of Business. His research examines the intuitive foundations of morality and how morality varies across cultures, including cultures of American liberals, conservatives, and libertarians. He is the author of The Happiness Hypothesis and the New York Times bestseller, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. At NYU Stern, he is applying his research on moral psychology to business, business ethics, asking how companies can structure and run themselves in ways that will be resistant to ethical failures. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Lisa. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, this is, this is terrific. I am really excited to speak about your new book, but I want to chat for a minute about the happiness hypothesis because this is really what put you on the map in the world of human happiness. Okay, please ask away. It's my, it's, my, it's my first child. I'm always happy to talk about my first child. Yeah, you know, aren't we all, right? They, they can do no wrong, the, 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 the good and happy child. So let's talk a little bit about, about human happiness, why you began to study happiness and what brought you to um, be interested in the subject matter. Um, so I, I 
didn't set out to study happiness. I've always studied morality, and while studying morality and coming to the view that morality is really based in emotions, it's not based in reasoning. We do our moral reasoning to find justifications for what we already believe, um, and so we'll talk about that later. But the route that took me into positive psychology is that I was studying the emotion of disgust and how disgust is a moral emotion. Uh, you see it all over the Bible. You see it all over our modern controversies about gay marriage and family life and promiscuity. And I'd spent so long studying disgust, I began to wonder what's the opposite of disgust because I'd come to see disgust as a reaction to seeing humanity's lower, baser, carnal nature. And then I started thinking, well, what happens when we see humanity's higher, nobler nature? Is there a feeling? And it seemed to me that there was, but there was no research on it whatsoever. Now, this was 1997-1998, which is right when Martin, Martin Seligman was just putting out the call for positive psychology. And so here he was saying, hey, psychology has, has really neglected the positive side of life. Anybody out there, especially younger researchers, anybody out there have something they think is relevant? You want to come down to this conference at Acumal, Mexico, and let's talk about it? So I said, yeah, you know, I just started studying this emotion of moral elevation, this warm, uplifting feeling we get when we see acts of charity or kindness or courage. Um, so that's what got me into positive psychology. Uh, and then while doing research on that and teaching Psych 101 at the University of Virginia, um, I found myself uh, using quotations from the ancients to explain all these great psychological ideas. And I decided, well, what if we collect them all and try to evaluate them? How good were the ancients at understanding psychology? And it turns out that while the ancients were just terrible at physics and chemistry, I mean, they really had no clue how the world worked, they were pretty good at understanding their minds and understanding how happiness works. And so that's what led to uh, me writing it all up in The Happiness Hypothesis. Which is a wonderful book, by the way. I, 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 I'm going to do the, uh, the second or third or fourth coming of the book and say, go get this book because it really is important and it really defines a lot for us to understand why we're here, the kind of life that we should hope to lead or, lead or aspire to lead, and what paths ultimately lead us to happiness. Now let's move on a little bit and talk about awe, because this I love this word awe, because to me it is the cornerstone of curiosity, wonder, delight, and all of these positive emotions that ignite happiness or a greater sense of well-being. Oh, yeah. Awe is such a fascinating puzzle. Um, once again, there's essentially no research on it. I did a literature, research, a literature search back in 2001 when I started uh, um, uh, studying it. And the only empirical paper, the, I'm sorry, I should say the only data anywhere in the PsychInfo database was a paper by a psychoanalyst uh, who, who counted out uh, dream. He coded his patient's dreams and he reported one dream that involved penis awe. Now, I'll, I'll let you imagine <laughs> That might be, but that was it. That was the only report of, of any evidence about awe, and that's not really evidence. Um, so my friend Dacher Keltner and I, Dacher is a professor at UC Berkeley, uh, we did a literature review. Not There wasn't anything in psychology, but we looked like in religious studies. There's a lot written about the experience of awe before the divine. Um, we collected everything we could find in philosophy and history, across cultures, and the conclusion that we came to is that awe happens when there are two features present, uh, vastness, that is we confront something vast, 
and a need for accommodation. That is something that doesn't fit into our existing mental structures. And so we have to kind of stop. We can't really process it. We just stop dead in our tracks and our mouth drops open and our eyes go wide open. And in history, accounts of awe are always linked to fear and dread, uh, trembling, you know, Moses uh, uh, receiving the Ten Commandments or Saul on the road to Damascus. So it usually is quite fearsome. Um, and it's only in modern times, beginning in the 18th century, that you begin getting discussions of the sublime and discussions of awe turn into more of an aesthetic emotion and then the much more positive emotion as you were describing it. So it has its roots in fear, terror, and dread, but really the key to it is that there's something vast that you can't understand. And that can be quite pleasurable as well as quite fearsome. You know what's interesting about what you just said is that if you look at modern vocabulary and the word awesome, which when I was a kid, and we're probably similar in age, townies use the word awesome. You know, uh -huh. I, I, I went to undergraduate school on the East Coast, and you'd hear kids from Boston, the townies, go, oh, that was awesome. Yeah, wicked awesome. <laughs> wicked awesome, exactly. And now awesome is really uh, vernacular vocabulary. Yes, it's kind of sad in a way. Um, emotion words are generally not very good guides to psychological states. So what I found in my research is that English speakers, or Americans in particular, don't really know the difference between shame and embarrassment and guilt. They can't use those words really discreetly. But if they tell you stories about them, then they, they get them a little bit more right. And it's the same thing with, with awe. Awe has become... Uh, just a synonym for double plus good uh, for anybody who read George Orwell's book 1984, where the government tries to bleach out the, the richness of language. So when people say that, that's awesome. What they really mean is double plus good, extremely good. Uh, <laughs> so we've lost the vocabulary as we've become a very secular, consumerist, individualist society. Uh, but awe really has its roots in, in the, the world, uh, the ancient world in which people were afraid of gods. They worshipped gods. They were afraid of the unknown. We have so much control, so much wealth, so much safety now. Um, so I think we probably experience awe in a different way. But awe is an awesome word. I mean, just to, to describe what defines that state of curiousness that keeps us alive and most uh, welcoming of it. I, I don't think there's another word. It's a little word, but it means so much. That's right. There's some other words, self-transcendence, um, amazement. Uh, there's a family of words. The thing I want to point out that I, I think listeners will find most interesting about awe is that it functions. it can function as a reset button. Uh, what I mean by that is that emotions usually influence us for seconds or minutes, not for an hour or two. Um, but awe, when you get an extreme awe experience, that is so overwhelming and paralyzing that it actually changes the amygdala, uh, and then a person is more fearful and responsive for months or years. It's a permanent change or semi-permanent change in the brain. Well, awe can do that too, but in a positive way. And if you look at, so if you ask people to look back on their the, the pivot points in their life, when did your life really change? A number of them will often be <clears throat> these awe experiences where you feel, you, you know, we look back at them, we savor them, we love them because there are times when we grew, we, we changed in a positive way. Um, and there's a wonderful book called Quantum Change, um, Miller and I forget the second author, uh, but that chronicles people's stories of massive change. So especially for those in the audience who are in any way therapists or just interested in personal growth, I think awe is an important and under-discussed under emotion for that.
We are going to take an awesome little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about your new book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress, Cayman, and my amazing, awesome, happy guest, Dr. Jonathan Haidt. To learn more about his work and his writing, you can visit him at www.happinesshypothesis.com. And on Twitter, he is John Haidt, and let me spell that for you. It's J-O-N-H-A-I-D-T. And on Facebook, it's Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and we will carry on with our music when we return. Beginning, I wanted to make a difference. I'll defy. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice. Happiness can be cultivated and harvested, so let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I'm here today with Dr. Jonathan Haidt, and we are speaking of moral psychology and the righteous mind. And before we jump into his new book, I want to make a slight correction to the Facebook contact. It is John, J-O-N-H-A-I-D-T on Facebook. So you can friend him, like him there. And um, to carry on, the new book that he has written is entitled The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Um, John, in your last book, The Happiness Hypothesis, it was an uplifting book about human flourishing and positive psychology, as we know. This book is somewhat darker. Have you changed your outlook or are we just getting a different view? 
No, it's just it, it's. I haven't changed. If anything, I'm happier now that uh, now that I'm successful and living in New York and have two kids. Um, it's that the first book <clears throat> was about ancient truths, ancient wisdom, and I didn't set out to write a book on happiness. But it just turned out that the the things the ancients were most right about about relationships uh, and controlling your mind, um, they they I put them together into a story about human flourishing. So it ended up being a very happy, uplifting book. Um, the the current book, The Righteous Mind, is about my research, and my research is on morality. And even though I'm I'm an optimist about human nature, um, you know the reality is that we are all hypocrites, uh, and we don't even know it. We see it in everybody else. We see uh, other people uh, being tricky and deceptive, but we think that we're so good. So you know the reality is much more mixed. Now, I actually am in awe of human nature in that it is such a miracle. That we, that our species was able to go from being a rather undistinguished primate um, two million years ago uh, to one that began to use tools and to live as hunter-gatherers. And then we do this incredible thing in the last few thousand years where we go from being hunter-gatherers to living in an amazingly peaceful planet with giant cities and, and well, good health care for some people. We're getting there. I mean, we just underwent this unbelievable transformation. And the book is about how we did it, how morality is this amazing ability that lets us work with non-relatives, with non-kin. There's no other species on the planet that can do that. You know, bees and ants can be, are very cooperative, but it's because they're all siblings. They're all children of the same queen. They share a nest. Uh, so it, it's a darker book, it's true, but I think it is one that talks about the most amazing aspect of human nature, our ability to form moral communities. In the book, you explain moral psychology in three principles. What are they? So the first is intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. Uh, in other words, we're always doing moral reasoning, but we're not doing it to figure out what's right or who did wrong or whether what I did was correct. We're doing it like a lawyer or a press secretary. We're, we're, we're engaging in reasoning to, to justify what it is we want to believe about ourselves or our team. And boy, do you see this in political reasoning. Um, you know, if, you have, if you ever have a debate with people on the other side of the aisle from you – you will see them twisting and changing their views just to, to, to reach the conclusion that you know they want to reach. Well, you know, we all do that. So that's the first truth. Second truth uh, is that there's more to morality than harm and fairness. And this refers to the middle period of my research on moral foundations theory and how morality varies across cultures. Um, people who are progressive or on the left, they tend to base their moral appeals on concerns about compassion you know, compassion and care and suffering, and also on fairness, where fairness especially means equality. Um, conservatives, on the other hand, while they recognize those, they think of fairness as proportionality, which includes punishment, and they care a lot about um, group loyalty and respect for authority and a sense of sanctity or purity. So when you when you understand that it's, our, our moral mind is like a tongue with all these different taste buds, you can begin to appreciate how left and right have different cuisines. It's not that one is right or wrong. I personally think that both are very perceptive about different threats and different problems. Um, so that's the second principle, that morality has all these different foundations. The third is morality binds and blinds. Um, it's not just about how I treat you. It's about how we get bound together into a community based on shared sacredness. If, if you and I hold something sacred, if we hold truth sacred, if we hold Jesus Christ sacred, if we hold America sacred, that will unite us in a way that lets us trust each other, but it also blinds us. We can't think straight 
um, about anything that threatens our sacred values. So the third part is, is I think, the most interesting and novel part of the book because this is stuff that hasn't been written about very much in psychology. Mm. And, you know, it's almost drug-like, you know, to be united in the same cause and to become blind uh, to anything else is, is a, a drug-like state. Absolutely. We all, yep, we all drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, you, you drink the Kool-Aid with your, the, your, your teammates, and once you've drunk the Kool-Aid, you start doing crazy, ridiculous stuff. Um, you know, and we're seeing this in politics. I mean, the fact that uh, Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, meets with uh, Barack Obama to talk about disaster relief, well, of course the governor and the president should work together. Of course they should. But in this crazy, polarized age when there are different parties, people say, oh, my God, how can he collaborate with the enemy? Um, so, or yeah, is he jumping the fence? Is he going to the other side? Well, exactly. That's well. That's right. I don't think anybody thinks he'll go to the other side. You know, people think maybe he's going to run for president, and so he's trying to burnish his credentials. But how pathetic is it that when a governor talks with a president, that this is somehow seen to be burnishing credentials? I mean, they should all be working together to solve our problems. Right. I mean, that's just business. It's the order of the it day. Should be, and it, that's right. And it used to be business. It used to be possible for people. You know, they would be fighting in Congress, but. Uh, when there were national, when there were national, um, uh, when there was any sort of international competition or threat, or when there were natural disasters, then partisanship used to disappear. But beginning in the 90s, when things got really, really bad, that doesn't happen so much anymore. Well, when we are blinded by our morality, how does one um, circumvent that to 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 solve a problem? You know, because it doesn't work. I mean, if we're all blinded right. by what we believe, we're stuck. That's right. And most of us are going to live out our lives that way. Um, but those who have to cross over. So, you know, I, I'm a I'm an academic. I'm a researcher. And I was always very politically liberal. I was a secular liberal. I was raised Jewish, but I was an atheist, liberal, standard, northeastern, Ivy League type type kid. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, stereotypes have some basis in truth. And I was a stereotype. But so here I was studying morality and I had to figure it out. I couldn't just, you know, I mean, the, the academy is very, very liberal. Most people in the social sciences and humanities are liberal, and there are almost no conservatives. Um, and so some of the research, people investigate their preconceived notions, and they find support for them, and they write stuff that makes conservatives look really bad. But I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to try to understand conservatives um, on their own terms. And so I approached it sort of like an anthropologist, and I watched a lot of Fox News, and I read – um, I subscribed to National Review, and I would talk to conservatives whenever I could. And after a while, I just began to get a sense, as, you know, as when you travel and you spend a month in a foreign country, and eventually, after a few months, you know, you get a sense of what's going on. And I realized, no, they're you know, they're not stupid, crazy, greedy racists as as many people on the left make them out to be. They they have they see certain threats to society that liberals don't see. Um, about dissolution, about the loss of structure and order and tradition. Um, they see certain threats, and I think they're right, just as liberals are right about the threats that they care most about, about discrimination and rising inequality and environmental degradation. So each side is correct about the things it cares about, but is blind to the threats that the other side sees. There's an interesting observation or realization that I made about the difference between liberals and conservatives, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it has been said that liberals are the mo are philanthropic, they give money, they're concerned with you know the greater good and humanity, whereas the conservatives are actually the ones that are putting up the money. They're actually giving more dollars 
Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Most of the effect is due to religiosity. In other words, um, the more religious you are, the more money you give to charity. If you include religious charities, then the effect is huge. If you look only at non-religious charities, it's still there. Um, when you do regression analyses to partial out the fact that conservatives tend to be more religious, um, it is still the case that being conservative makes you give more to charity, but then the effect is quite small. So it's more being religious that makes you charitable, not so much being conservative. The other thing which is notable is that conservatives are much more parochial. Now, that's often used as a bad term, but I, I think it's not a bad term. In other words, conservatives tend to be more rooted in their communities, and that that's part of the reason they're more generous, because um, our local, our town, our neighbors, th- this pulls charity and help out of us in ways that, you know, seeing, hearing about starving kids in Africa doesn't. And so uh, liberals are, are more globetrotting universalists. And that's great. They actually do, you know, they start all these foundations. They actually do try to address problems in the third world where you can get a huge amount of bang for your buck. So that's great. Um, but if everybody was an internationalist, I mean, my, my grandfather was a socialist labor organizer in New York. And my mother says of him that he loved humanity so much that he didn't have much time to worry about his own family. Um, so being parochial, worrying about what's close and local is a good thing, too. And I'm glad we have both the internationalists and the parochialists. You say in the book that liberals have more trouble understanding conservatives than vice versa. We're going to go to a break in a minute, and we can jump into it now and then finish it off after the break. But this is this is a very interesting statement, and, I've, and I'm curious as to why. All right. I can do it real quick. Okay. Uh, one is that uh, our finding at yourmorals.org, um, where I do my research, is that liberals base their morality on issues of care and fairness, and conservatives understand those, of course. So there's, it's, liberals don't have anything that conservatives can't understand. But when you start talking about group loyalty as a virtue or respect for authority as a virtue or purity and sanctity as a virtue, liberals often say, huh? What does that even mean? Like group loyalty, that's like fascism. That's like nationalism. That's not a virtue. That's like racism. So conser- liberals have a harder time understanding conservative virtues as virtues uh, than vice versa. The second reason is that if you are well-educated in this country, you have been ensconced in a somewhat liberal bubble most likely. You cannot grow up and get educated without being exposed massively to liberal ideas. But I was 40 before I actually read anything written by a conservative. I mean, they're not in the curriculum. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the you know Edmund Burke and and uh, even the Federalist Papers, which the right talks about a lot, that wasn't part of my education. So it, it's it just uh, the nature of American society. You can't avoid learning about liberal ideas, but a lot of liberals don't know much about conservative ideas. You know, point well taken. That that is that is really interesting. I find that. Uh eye-opening indeed. Um, We are going to be going to a break, and when we return, we're going to carry on this really wonderful conversation about the righteous mind, why good people are divided by politics and religion. This is uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt's newest book, and you're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Once again, I'm going to give you the contact information for Dr. Haidt. It is www.happinesshypothesis.com. On Twitter, he is John Height, and that's J-O-N-H-A-I-D-T. And on Facebook, he as he is the same. And when we come back, we will carry on this conversation. And I want to just uh, noodle around a little bit in your mind, John, about your previous liberal standing and how you might have shifted your own views as a result of your research. Because I think you've come out the other side changed. Have you not? Yes, that's correct. 
And uh, that's going to be interesting. More to come, yes. More to come. You know, the, 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 the drum roll, please. So we'll be right mm-hmm. back. Enjoy the tunes. And when we come back, we will find out the answer to the, what is it, the $20,000 question. Well, there's been inflation. It's the million-dollar question. The million-dollar question. We'll be right back. Make a difference. I wanted to fight. But life is tough, and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. likes to win, enter our weekly contests at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook, where we give away our guests' books, music, film, and products each week. In addition, we also do great Harvesting Happiness giveaways, like free coaching sessions with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Lisa's Books, Happiness First Aid Kits, H-Factor Where Is Your Heart documentary film, Happiness is an inside job product, including the Sterling Silver Infinity Bracelet that benefit Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, a nonprofit whose mission is to assist our returning military personnel and their loved ones challenged by combat trauma and other post-deployment reintegration issues. Join us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook. gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download the iTunes podcast of this show because we are having an incredible conversation with Dr. Jonathan Haidt about moral psychology and the righteous mind. Think about it for a minute, the righteous mind. And in his book, his recent book, entitled Moral Psychology and the Righteous Mind, I hope I have got the whole, I think there's more to it. The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Sorry about that. Once again, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And in his book, he really has explored the, the difference between liberals and conservatives. And as a result of his extensive research, he has made some personal attitude adjustments and we were waiting for the drum roll to uh-huh. uh to get into this because you were you are a self-proclaimed liberal before you started yes. writing 
That's right. I got into this research uh, specifically to help the Democrats because um, here in 2000 and 2004, I watched as Democratic candidates made these really ham-handed appeals to American morality. And the Republicans, on the other hand, George Bush uh, is not an eloquent man, but he, the Republicans were better able to connect. <clears throat> and I thought, boy, I can use my research to help the Democrats win. And that's what encouraged me to really dig deeply into conservative morality and try to understand them. And in the process of really trying to understand all sides, I, I became a centrist. But let me explain that in a slightly different way. Um, uh, most, most listeners have probably seen one version of the movie The Matrix, or at least they know a little bit about it. And in those movies, uh, The Matrix is a consensual hallucination. Uh, and that's a great metaphor. That's a great idea for the social sciences because all of society is a consensual hallucination. It's something that we make up. It's, you know, man is, there's a great quote, man is an animal suspended in webs of significance that he himself has spun. Uh, that's from Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist. So if you're a liberal, you live in a moral matrix that's all about um, oppression, victimization, racism, uh, and then the, the noble struggle for equality. Um, if you're a conservative, a social conservative, you live in a moral matrix about sin and degradation and the loss of national greatness and those damn liberals who ruined everything. <laughs> uh, but these are stories. These are interlocking um, uh, stories. The, each side has its own facts, its own history, its own economics. It's crazy. Uh, these are stories. These are moral matrices. And what happened as I did this research is it's like in the movie The Matrix when Neo takes the red pill is that the matrix dissolves around you. So I didn't become a conservative. Rather, what happened was I lost my smug liberal certainty, and I started realizing, wow, you know, society is really, really complex. And if you let one side run everything, they're going to make certain really predictable mistakes. Um, so what happened to me is I've come to respect both sides for having certain um, certain insights that are crucial. But at the same time, let me make clear, it's not that both parties are equally good. Right now, the Republican Party has gone out into outer space. Let me preface this by saying the Democrats had their crazy time in the 70s with the, the new left and the focus on race and gender. They lost touch with reality, and they alienated so many Americans, the so-called Reagan Democrats. So the Democrats had their crazy period in the 70s and into the 80s, and then they came a bit back to the center under Bill Clinton. Now it's the Republicans' turn. They've become the crazy party since the 90s, since Newt Gingrich made a bunch of changes. So I'm not saying both sides are equally to blame for the polarization. Uh, both sides share blame, but the Republicans deserve more of it. But if we step back and look at the long history of ideas, the struggle between conservative and liberal ideas, I think we need both. It's like yin-yang, and that's true uh, for how to make a good society, uh, and I think it's even good in your, in, in your own individual life, especially when you become a parent, and you need to become a bit more of an authority. And uh, you know, being a parent makes people a little bit more conservative, and it's it sort of helped me when I became a parent um, to think about authority and why I, 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 it's not right for me to be my kid's best friend. I do have to be an authority in certain ways that felt unnatural, but I've gotten used to them. You know, what I, what I think I hear you saying is it's creating somewhat of a moral equanimity. It's about becoming balanced in one's views and seeing the vice virtue of both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. That's right, because my own research, my early research was on how our moral judgments are driven by our gut feelings and our intuitions. We're not very rational creatures when it comes to morality or a lot of other parts of our lives. Um, and if, I, if I'm right about that, 
you know, if you take that those ideas seriously, then I think you have to see your side, your party, as limited. You know, if we're all getting together and drinking the Kool Aid and fighting our evil enemies, well, what are the odds that we've got it exactly right and they've got it exactly wrong? Pretty slim, and that really calls us, I think, to much, much greater moral humility, to recognize that as we get passionate about something, we lose the flexibility of our thinking, we lose our ability to recognize nuance, and we get things massively wrong. And I'm wondering if we, when we are in that state of being all you know, whipped up over our beliefs, you know, we stop thinking with the rational parts of our mind. You know, we're no longer in that executive functioning. We're in a more reptilian place, which I think you, you touched upon that earlier somewhat. But it, it does make sense that when you see kids, let's say, that belong to a white supremacist movement, or you see kids who are out uh, in a peace march and they, and they get themselves um, stimulated to a place where they don't care if they're arrested or they don't care if violence breaks out. They're not operating on all cylinders at that no. moment. That's right. So that, so I'm not here to say, oh, never be passionate. Always think reasonably and rationally. Um, you know, the passion that led civil rights marchers, white and black, to risk their lives changed America for the better. Um, sometimes passion in the face of great evil is is the right approach. It's the thing that get it's, it's what gets things done. Um, so I'm not saying everyone should be reasonable all the time. But when we look at institutions such as Congress, which has to function, has to work through compromise, um, that's where things have gotten really sick and we're all paying the price. Uh, so um, you know, what, what's true for us in our individual lives sometimes is not true for our institutions. And that's some of the complexities and difficulties I'm trying to work through right now in my research. Let's jump into religion because you are a self-professed atheist, yet you have some good things to say about religion. What are they and why? Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, growing up Jewish, I when I was a kid, I was really disliked Christianity. Like, oh, Christian, they kill Jews, and you know, and they have these crazy beliefs. Um, and so, I had a lot of dis. And then I read the Bible. I read the the Torah, and the and boy, was I horrified by what God <laughs> wanted the Jews to do. And you know, I mean, He commands us to commit genocide and all sorts of things. And I thought, oh, religion is just terrible. But as I began doing research on morality and studying how on earth we made that leap that we talked about before from hunter-gatherers to societies, well, it turns out religion is there in all cases. There's no such thing as an early civilization that doesn't have giant temples and doesn't circle around those gods and temples. Um, The new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, they write about how religion is a delusion, which is just, it's a disease. It took over our minds. We need to just eradicate it. Um, now, you know, I don't believe in God, but it's an empirical question as to, as, to whether, as to whether religion is an adaptation, that is, whether we evolved to be religious because it conferred some benefits, or whether it's just like a parasite that we should get rid of. And in the book, in chapter 11 of The Righteous Mind, I review the evidence, and boy, I think it's really strong on the side of how we evolved to be religious. And the function of religion, it's not to help us overcome our fear of death, evolution wouldn't care about that. Um, it's to bind groups together so that they can be cohesive, they can form a moral community, they can trust each other, they can work together, they can fight against other groups. And we are the descendants not just of successful individuals. We on this planet are the descendants of successful groups, and all of those groups were religious. Interesting. And also uh, one of the values of religion, and I'm going to just uh, broaden the circle a little bit and say spirituality, because it's not just the uh, uh, belief in God, but maybe to spiritual practice in the sense of being 
part of something that is larger than one's self. That these people, the people who are religious, who have a firm spiritual practice, tend to be happier as well. Well, that's right, but I think it's an open question. So there's a lot of a lot of interest now in people who say that they're spiritual but not religious. Humans have been spiritual without having big gods for you know hundreds of thousands of years, perhaps. Big gods only came about with agriculture. So you know the experience of having organized religion that's only a couple thousand years old. So it's it's not as though we have to have you know organized religions to be happy. Um, but the findings that I've seen about happiness in religion show that. If you're, a, on a, if you're conservative, then you're happier on average, and the more you go to church, the happier you are. But if you're on the left, then it doesn't matter how often you go to church. You're less happy, and going to church more often doesn't help. Because if you're spiritual but not religious, or if you're Unitarian, which is, I suppose, almost the same thing, um, then it's a very loose religion. You're not really bound into anything. And as Emil Durkheim, the sociologist, observed in, uh, over 100 years ago, it's when we accept bonds, when, when we're bound into groups and we lose some of our freedom, that actually is good for us. It's paradoxical. It doesn't sound nice, but it actually is good for us. And conservative religions bind us more tightly than liberal religions. This is why Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians are the happiest people in America, according to surveys. Interesting. I mean, it's, I, I personally, I have a hard time swallowing the blind faith pill, but that's what yeah. you're suggesting. You know, well, I, it depends. If your ultimate goal is to be happy and that's all you care about, then yes, swallow the blind faith pill. <laughs> now, some of us care about things other than happiness. I, I love pursuing the truth. I love research. So it's not, and I'm, you know, I'm, it's not as I'm going to make myself believe something I don't believe. Um, so there are many routes to happiness. One of them is through uh, extreme conservative religion, but there are plenty of other ways to happiness, and that's what your show is all about. It, it is, and there are so many ways to to the to the prize. But you know, the prize is really the the journey. You know, and what your work is about is a joyful journey, and that's why I love interviewing people like yourself because it's clear that you're passionate about what you're doing, and you and you are compassionate in your process of uncovering it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And before we run out of time, let me make this connection um, um, to what, what, what you were just saying. The, the many routes to happiness, um, the, the big lesson from the happiness hypothesis uh, was that happiness comes from between. Um, mm. Let me just explain that. That when I set out to write the book, I didn't even know it was a book about happiness. And the, the editors made up the, the title, The Happiness Hypothesis. They, my original title was 12 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Ancient Cultures and Modern Psychology. And then I got a contract and I ran out of time and I changed the title to 10 Great Truths. <laughs> That's a little Mel Brooks joke if you don't know. But, um, <clears throat> but by the time I finished the book, they called it The Happiness Hypothesis. And at first I said, well, I don't even know what that is. And then as I edited the, the final draft of the book, I realized, well, actually, there are three happiness hypotheses. One is happiness comes from getting what you want, but we all know that's not true, that you get what you want, you're happy for you know, minutes or hours or maybe a day, but it doesn't last. The second happiness hypothesis is that happiness comes from within, and that is, seems much wiser. It is much wiser. That's the wisdom of the Stoics in Greece and the Buddhists and Hindus in the East. Uh, the, you can't make the world conform to your wishes. So uh, you got five seconds for number three. Otherwise, we have to okay. save it when we come back okay. for break. Oh, okay. All right, then we will save it for number three. Oh. Third happiness hypothesis. Find out in just a moment. Stay tuned. Exactly. Stay tuned. Perfect. Thank you, John. We know that it's tough, and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. 
We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress Cayman will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. A part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now and you have not heard the rest of this show, please, please download the iTunes podcast because today we have in the house Dr. Jonathan Haidt and we are talking about Moral Psychology and the Righteous Mind. And his latest book is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And for those of you that don't know, um, Dr. Haidt is also Dr. Happy. His first book was entitled The Happiness Hypothesis, which is a fabulous book that I use in my work in Applied Positive Psychology. And prior to the break, we were talking about three things and we are about three to, happiness hypotheses. Yes, we are about to uh, <clears throat> uh, reveal the big reveal. Drum roll da, 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 on the third uh, so, okay, happiness so yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. So, so the first you'll recall was happiness comes from getting what you want. The second is happiness comes from within. And by the time I finished the book, I realized that no, the correct answer is happiness comes from between. And what that means is it comes from getting getting yourself embedded in the right way. Um, it comes from getting the right relationships between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. Um, so, you know, Freud said happiness is love and work. That's the first two. Everybody knows that. But what came out in my writing of the book was that we are these ultra-social creatures. We, we're, not just, we're not just like chimpanzees who got credit cards. We evolved... We went through a period of, of I believe, of group-level selection. Uh, that's a complicated story, but I'll just say we went through a period in which we were intensely social, and our success depended on our ability to form moral communities with each other. Um, we need other people around. We want other people around. And 
if you get embedded in the right way, that opens up your true nature. That opens up all of your potential. Um, so it's relationships, not just with one love interest, but you know, wide relationships with friends and family. Um, it's work. We need to be productive. We need to be doing something constructive, good for other people. Um, and it's something larger than yourself, uh, which traditionally has been religion. But, and this was the connection to our conversation earlier, uh, religion is an ancient and tried and true route to happiness, but it's not the only one. Uh, secular folk have to think a little harder. They have to think a little more. Um, but uh, it's very easy to construct a, a richly, deeply satisfying life for yourself without God or without religion. Uh, but you just have to attend to you don't have to. For most people, you have to try to find some way to embed yourself. That could be um, in a political movement. It could be in uh, teaching or art or science. Um, something where you feel that you're pursuing something noble, something good, in the company of other people whom you respect. And many people are able to get that through their work. Uh, many, unfortunately, cannot. Mm. Wow. That's that. You know, these are uh, very, very important considerations. You know, the three happiness hypotheses. And now moving on to how people can use what you are sharing in your recent book, The Righteous Mind, to improve their own lives. Sure. So the most direct connection um, is that if you understand moral psychology and you become a little bit more morally humble, that is, you recognize uh, that none of us has direct access to the truth and that all of our teams, all of our uh, all of our groups are diluted to some extent, well, suddenly your relationships get a lot better. I used to be very moralistic, very self-righteous. Uh, I, I was very judgmental of people who littered, of people who lied, of people who expressed racist attitudes or, or you know, thought that there was any difference between groups. That, well, what a terrible thing. Um, and, and now I'm, just much, I'm much more tolerant. I, I get angry much, much less than I than I used to before studying moral psychology. Um, you you just you you see oh well isn't that interesting or oh I wonder why he thinks that rather than what how can he possibly think that and how could he say that? Um, it also helps you make apologies really well. I still say dumb things to my wife that I know I shouldn't say, but now <laughs> instead of just defending myself and arguing about why I'm right, I'm better able to say, oh, I can see from her point of view, and I'm better able to make a really well-targeted apology um, that can shut off her anger because it's sincere. I really do realize that I screwed up. So moral psychology can really help you get your relationships right. It can help you in business. It can help you, it can help you be manipulative. But in a positive way. I mean, it can help you if you once you see things from other people's perspective, and you can couch things in terms that you know will appeal to them. Um, you know, well, you can call that being manipulative, or you can call it, you know, Dale Carnegie's "How to Win Friends and Influence People." It's just part of understanding that others are different from you. Um, so those are some of the main ways uh, where I think there are lessons from the book that can help us uh, improve our relationships. Um, oh, another big one is. Uh, happiness, it doesn't just come from within. It comes from getting the right kind of embeddedness. And for anybody who is a, a boss or a leader or even a parent, you're structuring, um, you're structuring environments in which your employees, your family will live. And so much of leadership, I think, is being able to create an ethical system, a system where people aren't cheating each other, people can trust each other. And when we get to work and live in systems permeated by trust, we're all happier. We're also more efficient. Uh, people don't lie as much. They don't, uh, they're not as lazy. They're much more engaged. They really throw themselves in. Uh, so if you want to have a group that is, uh, that trusts 
uh, trusts each other, that is excited about what it's doing, you want to create a, a moral community. And that's what moral psychology is all about. Um, what, when did moral psychology become a discipline unto itself? I would say in the 60s um, and 70s, beginning with a man named Lawrence Kohlberg. Anyone who studied psychology remembers his famous dilemmas about a woman who's dying of cancer and uh, the husband uh, want, uh, can't get the drug, uh, can't afford the drug, and should he steal the drug to save his wife's life. So when I entered the field of moral psychology in 1987, it was very much focused on moral dilemmas and reasoning and studying how children's reasoning about morality changes as they get older. Uh, but in 1987, when I was entering graduate school, the cognitive revolution was already past, and we were beginning to realize that we needed an affective or an emotional revolution as well. And in the 90s, with all this research on automaticity and just how amazingly powerful intuition and intuitive processes are, I started thinking, well, I, I think all this rationalist stuff isn't really right, and we shouldn't be studying moral reasoning. We should be studying moral intuition and moral emotion. So it became a field in the 60s, uh, but me and some other people in the 90s, uh, Franz de Waal in primatology, Josh Green and Antonio Damasio in neuroscience, um, a bunch of us started doing research that pointed to the emotions and the intuitions as the seat of morality and our moral competence. And beginning around 2000, 2001, I think uh, things really turned. And nowadays, moral psychology is this very vibrant, active field where people in all kinds of disciplines, from history through philosophy and, and um, uh, linguistics, everything, we're all studying um, uh, intuition and automatic processes. And let's go back to intuition because it is a very underrated and underutilized skill. Uh, well, since Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, I think it's, it, it is getting the respect it deserves. That, that's been a mega bestseller. Uh, but yeah, it took Gladwell, it took a great writer and popularizer um, to bring to the world's attention all this new research on intuition. And I th the way that I think about it is this. Um, our, our minds, or I should say our brains, are neural networks, and neural networks are pattern matchers. Neur neurons are very, very good at matching patterns. And so animal brains, you know, animals are, they, they come to recognize situations and respond quickly. They're not very good at reasoning. Now, we humans, we can reason. But we're actually surprisingly bad at it. If you give, you know, I always do this when I teach Psych 101. You give people simple syllogisms, um, uh, you, you know, just little logic problems. And they're very simple, but people are really bad at them. So the seed of our brilliance isn't our logic. It's not our explicit verbal rational thinking. Um, the seed of our brilliance is really our intuition, our ability to learn patterns. And that's what expertise is. That's what mastering something is. Um, and so it's not that you should trust your intuition in all cases. Often your intuition can lead you disastrously astray. Uh, but wisdom comes from, I'd say, getting the right relationship between the rider and the elephant. Uh, that's a metaphor I used in my first book, <laughs> where the, I, I know, it's too many metaphors. I, 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 I dream in metaphors. I no, they're good. They're good. Real, um, yeah. But the, the rider is our conscious reasoning, um, and the elephant is the other 99% of what's going on in our brains at any time, uh, where the process is invisible, and all we know is the output. So a mature person is a person who's, who has some, the mental stability to be able to both think rationally, but also take into account his or her intuitions. Um, and when those are working together, you know, like a rider on an elephant, you can get some really sophisticated and smart behavior. Well, I have one question for you. We, we are just about running out of time here, but I have one personal question I'd like to ask you, okay. and that is, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, what makes your heart sing? 
What makes my heart sing? Yeah. Um, well, I am an awe junkie. I love the experience of awe. So when I get to climb up on a rooftop uh, or look out over a cliff or go to an IMAX theater um, or uh, um, explore a new city, um, I just I love novelty. I love learning, uh, and especially if that learning is tinged with beauty or vastness. So um, so awe and the pursuit of awe makes my heart sing. Um, Moments with my children uh, when they are hugging each other, my, my three-year-old daughter and my six-year-old son, um, when they are so adorable and there's no fighting and, and uh, there's a harmony and, and adorableness in the house, that makes my heart sing. Um, yeah, happiness comes from between. So uh, relationships, uh, emerging into something larger than myself, um, lots of things. We're going to have to change our tagline around here. Happiness was an inside job. Now it has to be happiness is in between. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) To learn more about today's guest, connect with him at www.happinesshypothesis.com. On Twitter, he is John Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, the same on Facebook. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. John Haidt, thank you so much for joining me today, and thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We wish you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And we do have about a minute left, so we have one more question. This would be the the million-dollar question to end the segment on. John, is there anything people can do to help heal the divisions in our nation? Oh, absolutely. Um, the the key is relationships. The key is to actually get to know people on the other side. Uh, all of us, if you are, if you think of yourself as being on the left or the right, um, you know somebody who's on the other side, um, or you have a friend of a friend. And if you develop relationships first, then you can actually listen to each other. Um, whereas if you just try to engage at the level of ideas without building the relationship first, it's much, much harder. So approach someone on the other side and try to start with some word of praise. You know, I think you conservatives are right about X or you liberals, you know, we're really right to push America on Y. Start with some word of praise and then you'll be amazed at how they respond to you. They, they realize, oh, you're not out to attack me. You actually are interested. And then you can have a really um, uplifting conversation where you really connect. So through the listening is an act of happiness, greater understanding, empathy, and all the good stuff. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, John Height. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Heart and Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts.